ever been envious? Now, I, I certainly have. Um, now, some of you guys know me, uh, you know my family, uh, but some of you guys don't. So, just a bit of biographical detail. Um, about five years ago, me and my wife went back to Taiwan, which is where I'm from originally, to work as missionaries for a couple of years. And we, we, we worked as missionaries for two years, uh, working with students, and you know, we, we kind of came back, and you know, this was where envy really hit me. You know, I was in a sort of relatively good job um, before we left. Um, I was getting on in my career. Um, I was sort of my, my contemporaries were kind of all doing, you know, about the same as me. And then when we came back, I suddenly discovered that in terms of material things, all my friends have kind of rushed on ahead of me. You know, I, I, I we went. We, we were sort of at the stage of life where we were still renting. We came back and suddenly all my friends had bought houses. You know, I was driving this kind of little Ford Fiesta thing when all my friends had moved on to VWs and other things. Um, you know, all, all of a sudden, I just discovered that we were so far behind everyone else. And a part of me was, was really bitter about it. I was just thinking, Lord God, I have served you. I, I, I hope faithfully for the last two years. How how could you let me be the one to fall behind materially? You know, surely I deserve a Ferrari from my two years of faithful service for you. Surely I, de- I deserve better than this. And that is exactly the problem that Asaph faced when he's writing this psalm. And so we're going to see three things today in Psalm 73. Firstly, from verses 1 to 9, we're going to see the perplexing problem. We've already kind of touched on this. And then in verses 10 to 17, we're going to see two different potential responses. And finally, in 18 to 28, we're going to see God's answer to this problem and also our potential correct response to this answer. So first of all, then, we see a problem. Now, you know, if you've read Psalm 72, the psalm that's just before Psalm 73, you get a real sense of God's glory and majesty, and then the, the, the care that he takes for his people. And actually, that's exactly how Psalm 73 begins. We see, truly, God is good to Israel. Now, if that is true, how could it be that God's people sometimes struggle when the people who don't belong to God sometimes to prosper. That is a very particularly strange thing to happen, isn't it? If God is good, if God is good to his people, why, oh why, would the people that don't believe in him get get, get on well in life, whilst the people who seem to serve him well seems to flounder and languish. It's no wonder that the psalmist was envious. Look in verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the interesting thing is that the psalmist kind of focuses in on a particular group of people. 
who would seem to be the least likely recipient of God's blessing. You know, look, look at what these people are like. Their pride, in verse 6, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They scoff and speak with malice. And loftily they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. So, I mean, the psalmist here isn't even just talking about people who feel a bit meh about God. He's not talking about the agnostics. He's not talking about the people who pay lip service to God even. He's talking about the people who are actively speaking against God. And the thing is, we know this. We, we, we see this happening in our very own context, don't we? You know, every single Easter time or Christmas time, the BBC puts out messages about how you know, Jesus Christ never really existed. You know, he probably didn't actually die. He certainly never rose from the dead. And Christians are basically just silly to believe in those things. And yet, the BBC executives and the filmmakers and the documentary makers, documentary makers, they're able to sit in restaurants that most of us can't afford. They buy wine that none of us would even dream of opening. And so they continue to do well, even though they speak arrogantly against God. Yeah, we see this in the life of Richard Dawkins and other various famous atheists. They build an entire career on why Christianity and the belief in God is utterly ridiculous. And yet they, they sell books by the millions. Why? Oh, why would God allow this to happen if he is truly good to Israel, to his people? That is a baffling question, isn't it? Now, now, when we see this, when we observe this in our context, when we see this particular situation, there are two potential responses. Firstly, we can doubt God's sovereignty. And we see this in verses 10 to 14. Let's read. Therefore his people turn back to them and finds no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, this kind of doubting of God's sovereignty plays itself out basically in two ways. Firstly, God's people could doubt God's sovereignty by thinking that he's ignorant. That he just doesn't know. Look at there in verse 11. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God isn't doing anything about these people who speak against him. And he's not really helping his people because he simply just doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on with God's people. Is that true? that's, That's simply not the God that we know from the rest of Scripture, is it? So that's one of the reasons for doubting God's sovereignty. The other one is that God's actually powerless to do anything. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
It just kind of happens. It's, it's the law of nature taking its course that the, these evil people just kind of do well and God's people just don't do well. God, God is powerless to do something about that situation. And both of these together basically just work to undermine God's sovereignty. That God isn't really in charge of all the earth. That God isn't really the one who blesses or um, takes away blessings from people. But then the problem is, firstly, that's not the God that we know from the rest of Scripture. But secondly, most importantly, actually this particular line of reasoning leads us down a path to grumble against God and to lose our faith. You know, look at there in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed me hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, if we go down the line of doubting God's sovereignty, all that happens is that we start looking into ourselves and we go, well, what's the point in believing in God then? God's not blessing me. Why should I believe in him? And that's a very dangerous place to be at, as we'll go on to see in later verses. Now, the correct response, or at at the very least, the response of the psalmist, we see in verse 15 and following. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So, there are puzzling things about the Christian life. You know, let, let's not kid ourselves here. When, when we have the Bible and we have thought through a lot of issues, and we're faced with the world, there are plenty of things that makes us question what, what's going on in the world. And, you know, is the Bible really true? But the correct response is never to doubt God, but rather to seek after him earnestly, wanting to know his truth. Because it is hard to understand these things, and all we can rely on is God's revelation to us. In verse 17, it says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their ends. Our English translation here kind of makes it sound as if, you know, the the, the Asaf was kind of just wandering around and he was just going to church one day and out of the blue, it was as if God revealed, you know, his his answer to him. When actually, the, the translation should read something more like, when I went into the sanctuary of God to discern their end. You know, there, there was intentionality to um, the fact that Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. He genuinely, earnestly sought God's revelation to him so that he can understand these things. Because otherwise, these things are puzzling and wearisome to him. And then God answers him. God graciously and wonderfully answers him even though he found it difficult. 
we see this answer in verses 18 and 20 to 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, the psalmist doesn't, strictly speaking, tell us exactly how he felt when he realized these truths. But reading through, even though we're now three, maybe even 5,000 years after the event, I think we can empathize with the psalmist, can't we? It's very clear here that what he feels here is pity. He feels pity, as should all of us. When we, when we, when we see the angry atheists broadcasting against God, talking against God, what's our response? Usually we get riled up, don't we? Usually we want to defend God's name. But here, the psalmist, he feels pity because he knows he knows where these people are ultimately going to end up. Swept away. Swept away. As if phantoms. How can we feel anything but pity in that context? They're not to be envied. They're to be loved and to be pitied. Now, we know too as well, don't we, that it's not just the people who are going to get swept away, but all the things that they cared about, all the things, all the material goods that the psalmist was envious of, all the material goods that I was envious of, all of these things will one day be swept away. The nicest cars, Ferraris, Maseratis, Porsches, they rust Their bodies rust away. The leather decomposes. Everything just goes. The finest food you can eat tastes brilliant, wonderful in your mouths for 20 seconds. But then it comes out just like anything else, like that distinctly average sandwich from Greg's that you just had. The nicest clothes that you can possibly own. I mean, actually, tweed lasts very well. Um, so even though I've had this for a few years, it still looks pretty good. But I'm pretty sure one day it's going to fade, like all my other clothes. It's going to get out of shape, like all my other clothes. Either that, or I'll get even fatter, and I won't fit it anymore. All of these things, at the end of the day, are temporary. And so it doesn't, it simply doesn't make any sense for us to chase after them. Because they last a second in the eyes of eternity. Whilst we have an amazing future in glory, an eternal glory to look forward to. And that's exactly how Asaph goes on to respond. He first of all, he confesses his sin, doesn't he? He confesses the fact that he shouldn't have doubted God in the first place. 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I mean, I, I, I don't know if, I mean, this is a really kind of international congregation. So I, I can't really speak from a, um, well, I, I'm basically anglicized um, perspective. But I, I know from my perspective and certainly from a lot of my friends, you know, we don't tend to use language like this. You know, maybe in your cultures you do. You know, maybe in cultures you, you, you do, you know, when, when things are going really badly, you are able to say, I was like a beast before you. But generally speaking, we, we, we don't do that, do we? We don't confess our sins to the Lord in that kind of depth. And, and you know, it, it doesn't hit us as hard as it obviously has the psalmist. And I wonder, maybe, just maybe, we should cultivate a tender heart so that when we come to Scripture, when we come to hear God's Word preached, and whatever it is that is being preached is particularly piercing to your conscience, maybe we should cultivate this kind of a feeling where we are completely challenged by God as if we were beasts before him. But then, wonderfully, he has... An assurance of faith from God. In verse 22. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Now, if any of you suffers from a lack of assurance in the faith of Jesus Christ, I think this speaks wonderfully to you. Notice what he's saying here. You hold me by my right hand. It is God who does the holding. It is God who keeps his people. It is God who is continually with his people. So cast your eyes on him. Know that he is the one that holds on to you until you end up in glory with him. Even though maybe for now, for a little while, you have to suffer all sorts of trials. And then, after realizing this, the psalmist breaks out into this wonderful couple of verses of praise. Look at this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look, look at that, look at that response of praise. That is somebody who has been lifted up out of the depth of what, what seems to be a really low point in his spirituality to this place where he can confess that God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. Imagine, imagine being able to praise God like that. Now, you know, this isn't just kind of working to uphold the believer. You know, it does. It's brilliant and, and, and it's great. But something else flows out of this assurance and this praise. 
Because look, in verse 27, we're back to those people who don't believe in God. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You know, as we are assured of our salvation, as we know the glory of God, as we know what he's got in store for us, and as we contrast that with the eternal futures of the people who don't believe in God, how can we do anything other than pity them and tell them of all the works that God has done? in the world, and for them, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it could be that you are somebody who don't believe in God, that you are somebody who don't think that Jesus died for your sins, that you don't think that he rose again ever, because that's just scientifically impossible. And, you know, certainly the idea that he might be in heaven now, that, that's just weird, Maybe that's what you're thinking at the moment. And maybe you're at a stage in life where you're thinking, well, actually, my life is pretty good. You know, if heaven is like this, I I can live with that. You know, maybe you're thinking, I've got my, you know, three to four bedroom house. I've got my children. I've got a nice car. I've got um, all the gadgets that I particularly want. But you must know, that these things, and if you don't believe in God, all of these is temporary. That if you don't heed the warning of God, you would be swept away as of a phantom. Now maybe you don't believe in God, and you don't have any of that stuff. Then how much more then should you want this amazing eternal blessing and glory for yourselves? It's worth looking into. And as believer then, if you do believe in these things, just imagine if individually all of us can be without envy. Just imagine what that might look like. For one, I wouldn't be always looking for the next thing to buy. I wouldn't constantly be looking to have better things. I can be content in whatever it is that God has given me for that season of life. Not just, it's not just even just material goods. You know, I wouldn't envy the people with um, children who are better behaved than mine. Brad. Yeah, I, I, and and that, that that then doesn't put pressure on me to discipline um, Peter and Eric even more harshly than I have been. Instead, I can look at who they are, and hopefully, by the wisdom of God, I can bring them up in love in patience, and and trust them into God's hands, that God is the one who knows what to do with them. And sometimes through me as a parent, mainly through me as a parent. 
And it's not just that. Maybe you are single and you're thinking, oh, I, I really envy those people who are married. You know, that, that is difficult, isn't it? That is a very difficult part, especially in church life when everybody else seems to be getting married. You, you don't have to be envious of them because you know that God has put you in the position that you have for now. It may be forever. But nonetheless, that is where God has put you. And actually, if you think about it, marriage is temporary. It doesn't last. You know, there's going to come a day in the new heavens and new earth when none of us are given in marriage and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And wouldn't it be great if all of us knew that to be true for ourselves? Now imagine if as families, if as families you can be without envy. Now, yeah, my, my, we just said, my son, he, uh, Peter, he's two and a half years old, and he's already began to covet. You know, you, you can see this in him. Every time we're around at someone's house, and they've got the newest Thomas the Tank Engine trains, he goes absolutely mental for it. It's hilarious. But he grabs it, and he will refuse to let it go. You know, he, even, even until we're leaving, he would refuse to let it go. And it's really difficult to try to talk him out of that. Now imagine if little Peter didn't feel any envy. And actually, never mind him. You know, when I go around to other people's houses and I see, you know, the, the wonderful toys they have for their children, I start to covet for them. I, I start to covet and think, well maybe, maybe if I just, you know, if, if I, if I wasn't headed into ministry, maybe I could do something else, then maybe we can afford nicer things. But actually, that's not what God wants. And certainly there would be no more tantrums in the middle of the supermarket aisles because I refused to buy him some bizarre treat with Thomas the Tank Engine on the front that, you know, who knows what's in their stuff. Just imagine if our families don't envy. Now imagine if your entire church didn't envy I mean, you know, this is a wonderful building, isn't it? It's, it's really, really nice. And it's great to be able to meet with you know, a very big, a big congregation like this. But the thing is that the nature of envy means that it's never enough, is it? It's so easy for us to cast our eyes to a church a few tube stops, a, a few tube right, a, a few tube stops down the line and say, well, look at them. You know, they've got a massive congregation. Um, you know, the people they've got in uh, on the stage is way better looking than me. You know, maybe not Andy, but definitely better looking than me. And, you know, the music is slick. Um, everybody sings. Well, sometimes you can't hear, but everybody sings really well, etc. You know, it, it's really easy, isn't it, to start thinking, well, you know, look at that church over there. They're doing really well. How about us? But the thing is, if we don't envy, we can... Be together as a church. Serve God together by what is written in Scripture, revealed to God for us, rather than just falling to every wind of doctrine out there. Whatever, that, whatever might seem to work, doesn't matter. We can be faithful to Scripture. Now, of course, there's human wisdom. You know, no, nobody wants to take that away. But the fact of the matter is, 
how often are these things driven by envy rather than genuine wisdom from Scripture? It's questionable, isn't it? Now, the fact of the matter is, being envious is something that we all do. And for the most part, we we can't seem to escape it. And really, the only possible way to get better at not envying is to do exactly as the psalmists do, to go into the sanctuary of God, to seek after him, for him to reveal himself to us, so that every single time that we come before him, we're renewed with not just the sense of our own salvation and the glory that comes from that, but of the eternal futures of the people who don't know him. When we have both of those things in mind, it's clear here from the experience of Asaph, and I'm sure from many other people, we know that we can be progressively sanctified in this area. And the thing is, it's going to look different for everyone. Um, you know, the most obvious one is to just come to church regularly, to hear God's word preached, to meditate on God's glory. But also, we, we do, don't we, in our context, come to God's word and read it for ourselves. And sometimes that takes, you know, that, that looks really good in terms of, you know, we're really disciplined, we can read God's word on our, by ourselves and we meditate on it. Brilliant. But for some people, you know, it's difficult. Discipline is an issue. And with the busyness of work, with everything, it's really easy to, to just let it slip. And two things you can, in that, in, in that, in, in that instance, you know, find a way to read God's word more and more readily. Or make them just, you know, do it how you can. You know, maybe it's, you don't read, but maybe you listen to God's word as you're on the tube or whatever. You know, everybody is going to take a slightly different way, different approach to this. And so I'm just going to give you 30 seconds for you to think through what that might look like for you. 30 seconds. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you are good to Israel. We thank you that we can trust that even when things are difficult, even when we suffer in our health. um, We know that you are the one who uphold us, Lord, and we pray that we will be able to trust you in all things. Father God, we pray for those who do not believe in you. We pray that they would come, that your spirit would work in their lives and in their hearts, that they would read your word, that they would hear your word, know that you are good, 
and know that they are sinners in need of salvation through the Lord Jesus. Father God, we pray that your spirit would work in their hearts so that these things would be effective and that they would come to a, a, a saving faith in you, Lord. Father God, we pray that for those of us who are Christians, we would trust you in all things and that we would always know that you are the fount of every blessing, that all our gifts come from you and that we are ones who live to glorify and worship you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.